The District is brought to you by Stuff Picks, bringing the best crime, documentary and mystery movies of the big screen to your screen. Just a quick warning, this series contains explicit language. Episode 7, The End of the Ride. Remember how we talked about injustice as being like a contagious disease? I got to thinking, when it comes to the wrongful conviction of Arthur Thomas, is it possible to isolate where it began? You know, was there a moment when the contagion took hold before it was even obvious? Which got me thinking about an event which happened before anyone even knew there was trouble in the district. Well, I was 21 when the murders happened. Only just turned 21. Margaret Stuckey, Arthur's sister, had her 21st birthday party two days after the crews had been murdered, but before anyone knew they were dead. Arthur was at there. He was there. Living was there. Margaret hadn't wanted a party. She was pregnant and suffering from morning sickness. But about 25 friends and family arranged a get-together at one of their places. Everyone brought a plate. In case you don't know... That's Kiwi slang for everyone bought some food to share. Oh, we were just all normal people. I'm fascinated by this event. Like it somehow marks the end of their innocence. Margaret and Des's brother, Arthur Thomas, and his wife Vivian, gathered with everyone right before their lives are turned upside down, before Arthur is arrested for murder. And Margaret has already started to sense something weird in the district. Something just felt like it had changed. When you say... Something changed. What, what do you mean? Oh, it just sort of, it's like the clouds came down, you know? It was like doomsday. Felt to her like a curse had come down on the district, like it would never be the same again. People want that sleeping dog's life. How you fucking live like that, eh? You're stood out like dog's balls. Right, here you going? Howdy. Everything's been covered up. This is a Stuff Circuit podcast called The District. A story about injustice, about a murder investigation that goes off the rails, about gossip and whispered accusations. But mostly, a story about people. People who are trying to get on with their lives, but can't. This story is produced by Toby Longbottom and Paula Penfold, with field recording by Phil Johnson. I'm Eugene Bingham. Howdy, howdy. Howdy. There's a fourth one. Sorry. We're taking our last trip out to the district. Bring the rain with you. We've apparently. Yeah, yeah. All right, no, you don't, don't take credit to that. We've had the rain for a couple of days. <laughs> the whole Justice League is here. Des Thomas, Hi. his sister Margaret, and Hi. her husband, Hi. Buster Stuckey. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. As usual, the table is piled with a country spread. This time, squares of bacon and egg pie and slabs of chocolate cake. That wasn't the deal. You said a batch of scones. <laughs> oh, you, seen, you didn't sound too happy about that. It's always convivial, but there's a bit of an awkward feeling in the air because they know I've been to see Rod Rasmussen and I know they'll be hoping I've got some good news. Um, yeah, so we've been out to see Rod Rasmussen. <laughs> did you see him? I did. You oh, he opened him. up the gates for you. Yeah. Did he really? Yeah. He did? Yeah. 
Well, praise the Lord for that. Buster seems happy, but Des is looking for ways to put off the inevitable. Well, well, who wants a drink? Yes, please. So how many coffees? When we do eventually sit down and tell them about our encounter, I launch into a monologue like I'm nervously talking to some kind of panel. I think I'm nervous because of that fear of letting them all down. You want to talk to us for 10 minutes or something? Yeah. And it boils down to, so on the guns, he says he had them, but he, he kind of tells it differently to how Paul Jellick tells it, and he's adamant that he took them to the Thames police station. Des is sitting beside me on a stool. His arms are folded and he's looking down on me like a hawk studying its prey, waiting for anything he can seize on. As I carry on, I feel more and more that I've got nothing. He says, I wasn't blackmailed by the cops, you know, that didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. But um, I know that Arthur didn't do it. Arthur didn't do it. He's innocent. Not even the news that Rod Rasmussen thinks Arthur is innocent can break Des's silence. I don't know if he's gathering his thoughts or if he's got so conditioned to disappointment that his default reaction is to stay calm and cool, like he's got refrigerator fluid in his veins. But for whatever reason, I can't stop. But he kind of, he's pissed off with you guys for calling him a liar. And he says, I've just told the truth. The cops have been, they are the ones who did it, but I know that Arthur didn't do it. And I'd like to shake Arthur's hand and say that I'm sorry for ever thinking that he did. Still nothing. It doesn't help that I can't shake a feeling that I've been almost disloyal. I had come away liking Rod Rasmussen on some level. And he's been a mortal enemy of the Thomas family for almost half a century. Ever since he gave that evidence about the axle, the evidence the police continue to stand by, but the Thomases believe is corrupt, that the stub axles were planted. In the Lovelock Review, police reject that allegation. But Buster and Dears want to know what Rod Rasmussen had to say about it. So is he happy to concede that before the stub axles were found on the turf, that they were at his place? Well, he... He just he just says, I don't know, you're talking about 50 years ago. I can't yeah, remember exact dates, which is kind of fair enough. Yeah, he's absolutely. 86. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's 50 years ago. Well, he's, he's, oh, no, he's quite an old man, you know. Yeah. I suppose when you think about it, it was a long time ago. Well, we are going back years, aren't we? Everyone's getting quite old now. Well, yeah, aren't we? <laughs> Des was only 17 at the time of the murders. And here he is, 50 years later, still seeking answers, because this is personal. Dad. When they arrested I, I can remember him coming out of the office in the piggery and, and I could just see there's a change in the man. I said, what's wrong? He said, oh, the bastards have arrested Arthur. Des Thomas has also become like a clearinghouse for tips and fresh leads over the years. People contact him with information. Much of it, as Des puts it, you know how it's, what it's like, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In other words, stuff that doesn't go anywhere or is downright crazy. But there are things which stun him, or again, as he puts it, makes him think, Jesus, I can't believe this. You know, that's terrible. In that category are three things we've been taking a close look at during this podcast series. The statement by Paul Jellick about the guns found at the batch, the gun the top cop collected from the Mackins, and the rusted old 22 found in Tony Clark's dam. So where are we left with all those leads? Let's start with the gun in the dam. I'm happy to send it up to um, a couple of friends I have up in the States. And just Remember how Chris Small, the Remington agent, was going to see if he could find some overseas specialists for us. At least we can get a quick day or maybe there's a few guys up there, but quite knowledgeable. Eventually we tracked down a world-leading firearms expert in Australia. Gerard Dutton is his name. And after a few emails back and forth, and sending him photos of the old rusted weapon, he comes back with an answer. 
This kind of rifle can be excluded because its characteristics don't match the markings found on the murder bullets. In his opinion, the gun found on Tony Clark's farm is not the crew murder weapon. It's good to finally have an answer, but I won't say I'm not a little disappointed. I tell Des Thomas. He's confident that that gun found at the dam is not Hmm. the murder weapon. But I don't accept anything unless a bullet's fired out of it either, too. And you can't. No, that's right. Okay, this is important. You can't fire a bullet out of this gun because of something weird that happened. Please cut it in half. When it came back from the police, the barrel had been cut in two. Pulled it to bits. No one has been able to explain to us why this happened. Yeah, he brought it back and it was in three pieces. And I said to him, I said, what happened here? He said, oh, we cut a section out of it to see if we get the rifling out of it. When we show photos to one overseas expert, he tells us in an email that he is dumbfounded, that he can't imagine the circumstances in which the police would take a rifle and cut the barrel in two, especially when it's a rifle that could potentially have been used in a crime. He says cutting the barrel blows any possible chance of being able to ballistically match the gun. Like Dez says, you can't test fire a gun when the barrel is cut in two. It just doesn't make sense. You wouldn't do this with a weapon potentially used in any crime. And this isn't just any crime. And, and this is a double homicide. This is not just a fucking bank robbery or something. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, Dez has a knack of putting things much better than me. It's just more odd, maybe even inept, behaviour from the police. And it doesn't help that they just won't talk to us. They say that's for privacy reasons. It's the same with number two on our list of unanswered questions. The Paul Jellick statement about those guns stolen from the Coromandel Holiday Home. And that's when he said, I think we need to get the police involved. Guns which then ended up in the hands of Rod Rasmussen. When I go to the police... They refuse to answer any questions about Paul Jellick's statement. Nothing at all. All they'll say is that it was considered as part of the review process, but it's not possible to discuss it further. Once again, privacy reasons. So I've got sympathy for Des Thomas. How he can't help but get pissed off at the contradictions, the silence, and how he reads between the lines of the many, many, many pages of correspondence he's amassed. Oh, I've got a folder like this in there about all the lies they've told to me, outright lies. I believe in just continually writing, and if they bullshit me, when all this comes out, all right, yeah. I've got a paper trail, yeah. and I'm just going to, I've got names and people that, sh- that should be doing the job that aren't. Yeah. Hey, yeah. they're bullshitting me. And we, all that we're doing is trying to get the facts. And, and this is if there's one other person in the district who knows that feeling, it's Lynette Stevens, whose brother was killed when he was hit by a bulldozer driven by Carl Lobb, and who believes there's a connection between that and the crew homicide. Remember she uncovered what we've called the Mackin gun, the third and final thing on our list, the gun that apparently had a connection to Len Demler, the original suspect, a gun that had been spirited out of the district the one that Andy Lovelock went up north to collect. Yeah. And we, we got a um, text from Ros Macken telling us yeah. about the gun. I hope this helps. So we went and got it um, sworn by a, um, someone in Manukau, JP. And the text, you know, said a BSA 22, whatever, five-shot yeah. magazine. And, but, yeah, I, I, after that, it all just turned to custard and, and nothing more about it. And how did, how did it turn to custard? 
And this was another really random thing that happened. And here we go, off on a classic Lynette tangent. And he was telling Roger that his brother was killed by Carl Lobb years ago. This time, about a guy who runs a shop in Pukekohe, who is allegedly ex-CIA. Roger came home and said, you got to get in and speak to this guy. He said his brother's been killed too by Carl Lobb. And I said, what? And who initially said he was going to help Lynette, and, um, but then turned on her. And then the, when I rang him, he, he was really rude to me on the phone and he said, I never said my brother was killed, he was injured. We were told, Roger and I were told, that he was ex-CIA and he's really dodgy. Anyway, putting all that aside, Lynette is sometimes right. There was a gun that Andy Lovelock picked up, and it did all go quiet. When I asked the police about it, again, they refused to answer specific questions. All they'll say is that no firearms collected during the time of the review or after, so presumably the Mackin gun and the Tony Clark gun, proved to be of interest. And it's in that environment of silence that people like Lynette Stevens and Des Thomas, people who are aggrieved by injustice, feel a seething resentment. Why isn't there a decent explanation about the Mackin gun? Not just a dismissive, we know better, go away response, but a proper, here's what happened and here's why this gun is irrelevant response. Because the way it's been left, I can see why to Lynette and Des, the Mackin gun is a smoking gun, It's understandable that they're suspicious about the whole saga, because there are so many questions, and frustratingly, typically, no answers. It pisses me off that the police won't be interviewed. Eventually, I get a statement from them, which we'll put on the website. It says the Lovelock Review assessed all the information available, including the matters raised in this podcast that are not in the report, and the review itself was independently reviewed by David Jones QC. The anonymous statement also says the police firmly reject any commentary by the Thomas family that the review work was unfair. It points to comments by David Jones that the review was conducted in an objective and balanced way. I also obtain another police document called Appendix 1, a whole other report that was produced at the time of the Lovelock review, but was not released publicly. The Lovelock review was 328 pages long. If you print it out, it makes quite a thump if you drop it on the desk. This extra section, Appendix 1, is another 517 pages. Des and I compare each version, his and mine. 54 of the 517 pages are blacked out completely, including one chapter that is almost entirely redacted. You know, normally, well even that's bad enough, normally you see something and then they've blacked out a name here, there, there, but that's just bloody ridiculous, eh? Even the title of the chapter is redacted. Although in Keystone Cops fashion, it appears clearly in the footnotes. And what is that chapter? Allegations that Arthur Thomas disclosed complicity in the murders of Harvey and Jeanette Crewe. In plain English, more supposed dirt on Arthur. That must have pissed you off when you saw that. Of course it does, that's why... When I sit down to read Appendix 1, what strikes me is something Des Thomas has been seething about for decades. But now it's me ranting about it. It's really interesting, though, when I read it, that there's bits like, you know, I've been hanging around with you too long, obviously, and I've become a bit jaundiced, but it's really, it's hard to see how they spend so much time going over lots of little details about Arthur when you know that there's stuff like Paul Jellick, what Paul Jellick had to say is not even in there. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. You know, I like, do. there's that, that, yeah. that story about some crazy probably bullshit story about the underpants. 
So yeah, nothing about the guns. But the best part of two full pages on this wacky story about Arthur Thomas and the Demler girls. Let me tell you about it. The story goes that Arthur Thomas told someone at some point unknown that at some point unknown, while he was at primary school with Jeanette and her sister Heather, one of the girls dropped a rubber on the floor, asked young Arthur to pick it up, and when he did, exposed her bare bottom to him. I'm none the wiser about what this has got to do with anything, but there it is, in Appendix 1, in ridiculous detail, not going anywhere. Its inclusion just baffles me when there's so much that seems potentially relevant that's not in there at all. Stuff like the Mackin gun. You see, is a, you know, they've they've done all that to us, but then we've got no redress, eh? Hey? We bugging. Yeah. Since yeah. the police won't talk to us, the obvious person to ask is Andy Lovelock, who led the police review and who's now retired. At the time of the review, he was a detective superintendent, one of the highest ranked police officers in the country. His 40-year career earned him an honour from the Queen as an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. I'm not expecting a warm reception. I don't think he'll be making scones for us. No. So we try approaching Andy Lovelock for an interview, even leaving a letter for him, setting out what we want to talk to him about. A letter under the door. But it's another no. All we get is an email back from a lawyer saying he does not want to be interviewed, directing all questions to the police. It's gutting he won't speak. I've got so much to ask him. He's been like an invisible presence in the story for so long now. A man who exists only as the name on a report. I get the fact that he's now left the police and wants to get on with his life. Others would love to get on with their lives too. Take Carl Lobb for instance. The guy who you could argue put himself in the middle of this whole mess by coming forward with what the Royal Commission essentially says is bullshit evidence. And for the last few years, he's had Lynette Stevens on his case. I'm dying to know what he makes of it all. So a try one number I've been given. The person you're calling cannot be reached at this time. Please try again later. No luck. So I track down another number. The person you're calling cannot be reached at this time. Then a breakthrough. I'm so really sorry to trouble you, but I'm, I'm trying to find Carl Lobb. And I get a number for him. Is it? Hello? Is that Carl? Yeah. I tell him that I'm recording a series about the district and the crew murders and Lynette Stevens. You still live in the district? Yeah. Yeah. What's it been like living there? Well, it hasn't worried me. Yeah. Most of the ones I know, they don't ask me silly questions or anything. I guess he thinks I'm about to launch into a string of what he will consider silly questions. I start with his evidence against Arthur Thomas. That thing I always just left sleeping dogs alive. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously what lots of people have said to us, um, but I guess for people like the Thomas family, it's a bit bit tricky. Um, they can't really let <laughs> it's not There is no such thing as sleeping dogs for them. Oh, yeah, well, they could change your attitude or whatever. In, in what way? Oh, well, just accept what's happened and things. He explains that he never wanted to get dragged into the crew case that he'd been promised his name would be kept secret, but then it leaked out after the 1980 Royal Commission hearing. So your, your evidence was that you saw Arthur pulled over and you saw him with a trailer and two things under the covers on the back, and that's, that's, that's what you said at the time? Yeah, I just told them what I saw on the thing. And didn't, yeah. I didn't say I saw Arthur, but I saw a car exactly the same as Arthur's. Actually, the Royal Commission's report says his evidence was he saw Arthur's car, 
not a car like Arthur's. One of the things that the Royal Commission said was they had a problem with the fact that you hadn't said it in 1970, that you you only you didn't tell them tell the police that at the time. Well, those days there when you're a young fellow and that you didn't go anywhere near bloody police. When I ring him, it's a Tuesday afternoon, and he's at home with the TV on in the background. He's retired these days, but he still does the odd day's work around the district. So it's kind of fair enough that he's being a bit vague. His sentences trail off and he mumbles a lot. Still, I need to ask him about the death of Murray Christensen and what Lynette Stevens has to say. What happened that day? Well, it was a straight-out freak bloody accident thing. And everyone make, makes their own stories up on things like that too, you see. But there's no yeah. one that knows that, that that's not right, so... That's why yeah. I just leave it alone. I want to. I want to hear from you as the person who was there. What happened, Murray? I got on good with Murray and everything else and that, and then they started accusing me of this and things like that and that. Obviously, Lynette feels pretty upset about this, as you can imagine. You know. Um, yeah, it upset me too. Oh, Murray and that kind of thing there. So you guys got on well. She, I mean, she heard some things about you and you and Murray having fights, and and that Murray oh, at one point. Thought, that's what I say. They start yeah. all these stories is different. I don't okay. think I even even crossed we never ever crossed words. Okay. So he's denying there was anything sinister to do with the death of Murray Christensen. And let's not forget, while he was taken to court, the charge against him was withdrawn. Which leads us to the central meaty allegation. The one that was right at the entrance to this whole rabbit hole. Lynette Stevens believed that the case against Carl Lobb over Murray's death collapsed because the police were protecting him as part of a conspiracy to cover up the crew case. You know that Lynette thinks that that because you were charged and, and obviously the, the case didn't go ahead, um, the charges were dropped. And that, that's fair enough. It's important to state that the charges were dropped. Um, so you've there was never any conviction against you. But she feels that 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 happened like that because of your involvement with the crew case somehow, that, that the police were looking after you? No. No, nothing to do with anything like that there. There was no suggestion to you that we'll look after you because of what happened with the crew and you giving evidence to the Royal Commission? No, no, nothing there. Well, that was it. Did anyone ever mention the crew case to you? No. So from Carl Lobb's perspective at least, that's case closed. But Lynette Stevens is never going to buy that, especially when it turns out, as with everything in the district, things are not straightforward. Who do you think killed the crews? Well, that's what I'm not going to bloody say on the thing there. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of finger-pointing and rumours and accusations, isn't there? And that's what we're trying to do, is really trying to get down to the bottom of things. Well, what I saw, and it was put together and... Few things I saw later on, and that. And what, do, what do you mean by that? A few things you saw later on. So the things I saw later on, but that was told to those policemen, and they go and thing, and that was it, and it was left at that. Was that? Did you give that? A lot, a lot of that evidence just disappeared. What does he mean about evidence he gave so disappearing? You, do you want to tell me what this other stuff was that you saw, apart from the trailer? No, no. Everyone will bloody start making up their own stories so it just you know it's just like it's a bit sort of mysterious that's all Mm. silence 
Everything blows away in the wind, again. How can Carl Lobb do that? Talk about evidence disappearing. Things that happen that apparently provide answers, and then refuse to say anything more. This case is so much bluster and noise, yet so much silence. Unbearable silence. And that dooms some people to a life of torment. At Lynette Stevens' house, as we leave, she shows us her spare room. You want to see the mess in that little room there, honestly. Take a look on that bed and on the... Can we have a look? Yeah, have a yeah. look. And on the shelf, all the books oh. that I bought and... Yeah, have a look. Roger goes nuts because he's a, he's a real tidy person and I'm just, <laughs> I'm just... I just treat this place like an office sometimes. It is like an office in some ways, with stacks of paper and books. Oh, there we go. But it's not yeah. like any office I've ever seen. It's just a mess. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Yeah. A lot of material. For starters, right in the middle, lying there for all to see, is the photo of a dead body. It's a photo of Lynette's brother, Murray Christensen. It's a gruesome reminder that this all starts for Lynette with a horrible, horrible personal tragedy. And that's what compels her to keep going. Even when it sees her make enemies and puts her offside with so many people you lose count. I just don't buy that there's any grand conspiracy to cover things up or let Carl Lobb off the hook. I've seen no evidence of it. And for the record, the police reject any such suggestion. But Lynette Stevens has uncovered plenty of really smelly stuff. And the way her brother's death was handled was sloppy at the least, with failings over the prosecution and by WorkSafe, the health and safety officials. It's the dilemma of Lynette. Maybe Don Brash, of all people, explains it best. The controversial former politician who remember once met with Lynette to see if he could help, had this to say about her in an email. He writes, I feel genuinely sorry for her, and I suspect she has indeed been the victim of some pretty rough treatment by officialdom, including, I suspect, the police. Brash's email continues, But she is, in many respects, her own worst enemy, convinced that everybody is out to get her. I have given up trying to help. So, Brash has given up. I get the feeling no matter how many people give up on her, Lynette Stevens will be looking for answers till the day she dies. I said I have to go through it myself to see for myself exactly what is going on and that's why I dig and dig and dig till I find out what's going on. I just can't handle it. I probably am being stupid and foolish and naive and getting involved in all this, but what else do you do? Do you just sit back and let it go on and on? I don't know. Maybe it is best. (laughs) Living in denial. Um, thanks so much for your time, though. Even no. if I mean, I understand that you can't probably can't do anything. It's just you know, it's just nice that you'd even come out to listen. That's all. It's well, just well, we should make tracks. We've taken up so oh, much of your time. Thank you. you. More reading. I always go with more reading from your house. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but at least this other one, he had some pictures in it. <laughs> the last time we visit Des Thomas's place, he, his sister Margaret, her husband Buster Stuckey, they all seem on edge. I am too. It's that feeling I've come empty-handed. That for all I've looked at, all the characters I've met, all the polite rage and fury I've listened to, I haven't achieved anything. And I'm walking away with the sense that there has been an enormous wrong done one that I just cannot see being undone. Alrighty, oh. thank you for the cake. And the... Dez can't seem to let us go. He keeps asking what I think needs to happen. So are you satisfied with what you've seen? Even though I don't really have an answer, 
even though I don't think anyone will ever have an answer. I try my best. I, I mean, I think it does come down to somebody independent coming in. Because mm. you can't... It's New Zealand's too small. Yeah. And the Lovelock Review has muddied the waters so much. As we tie up our shoes and try not to trip over the gumboots at the front door, there's time for one last piece of Des wisdom. I think his review has helped us because it's so negative mm. towards us, eh? It gives us ammo. Who are you going to shoot? Don't get that from us on there. <laughs> <laughs> one last laugh. Because Next minute I'm you'll be asking if I've got any more extras. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. Okay. See you later. <laughs> All right. Thank you, your And then I get off that roller coaster ride, right where roller coaster rides always end, back at the beginning. And all the Thomases are left with is more silence. So that was The District, a Stuff Circuit podcast series, written and produced by Toby Longbottom, Paula Penfold, and me. Toby also edited the series. Phil Johnson and I recorded the sound. Blame me for the dodgier bits. The final sound mix was provided by David Liversidge at Radiate Sound. Archival sound recordings from the RNZ collection at now Taonga Sound and Vision. And our music is from Audio Network. Mark Stevens, Patrick Crudson, and Keith Lynch are the executive producers. We had digital help from Su Yun Son and Alex Liu. You can find out more about the podcast series and the characters in this story over at stuff.co.nz. Have a look at the website where you can find extras, including some wonderful archival photographs. Oh yeah, and some recipes. We spent so much time in farmhouse kitchens, we thought we should share the love. I'm Eugene Bingham. Thanks for listening. Hooked on Crime and Mystery? The best crime, documentary and mystery movies are ready to watch tonight at Stuff Picks. Go to stuffpicks.co.nz today to rent the latest blockbusters and new releases for just $6.95 with no subscription fees. Thanks for listening to The District. We're giving Stuff members access to bonus episodes of the podcast. Go to stuff.co.nz and log in and we'll tell you what to do next.